This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The kings of Israel, with very few exceptions, were an unmitigated disaster. God had warned them that this would be the case. God had delivered Israel from the Egyptians. He had made them into a nation, given them the law and their own land. And yet Israel wanted an earthly human king. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders of Israel came to the great prophet Samuel Give us a king to govern us like other nations, they said. Samuel was, the text says, displeased. And so he prayed, but God said to Samuel, don't worry, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. And thus, the Israelite monarchy began with God's people wanting to be like other nations, with Israel wanting to look like the world. And so God allowed them their kings. A few tried to be faithful. Most were horrible. God's law was violated, foreign gods were introduced, injustice pervaded society. But out of his grace and by way of reminder, God sent the prophets. He did not abandon his people Israel, but gave them prophets to remind them of God's law and God's love. The great charismatic early prophets like Samuel and Nathan and Elijah and Elisha, who dominate the narratives of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, and then the amazing latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the authors of the Book of the Twelve, the so-called minor prophets, who were minor only in length, uh, certainly not in their clarity of vision or the depth of their courage. Together, the prophetic writings that include First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings in the in the Jewish canon. Together, the prophetic writings make up more of our biblical canon than the New Testament does. Called by God to a mostly thankless task of proclamation and prophetic action, these men and women, uh, yes, women, we must not forget that the Old Testament calls Miriam in Exodus 15 and Deborah in Judges 4 and Huldah in 2 Kings 22, prophets, these men and women gave dire warnings, offered paths to repentance, and preached future hope in the midst of what looked like hopelessness. 
Their constant theme was that Israel, including its kingly leaders, needed to turn from the ugly stepsisters of idolatry and immorality, two sides of the same coin, or face judgment and exile. The great writing prophets ministered before, during, and after the exile. But their message, in spite of differing political circumstances, is consistent. God is the only true Lord and King. His way, his rule must be followed or there will be disaster. But even in the midst of disaster, even in the midst of Israel's faithlessness, God will remain faithful. And no matter what, he will produce a future for his people. Ezekiel, who we're going to talk about today, was called to be God's prophet in the midst of exile. Already the northern tribes of Israel had been destroyed by the powerful Neo-Babylonian Empire. Neo, sorry, Neo-Assyrian Empire. Between the years of 740 and 722, most of the northern part of Israel was defeated, deported, enslaved, and assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. They disappeared from history. Now it was Judah's turn. Judah, the southern kingdom, faced a new enemy, the Babylonians. The Babylonians themselves had been dominated and humiliated by the Assyrians. Now the tide was turning. Every empire eventually collapses. With the aid of the Medes, the Babylonians under their general and future emperor, Nebuchadnezzar II, defeated the combined armies of Assyria and Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in northern Syria. Sometime after 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar moved against Egypt itself. Egypt had at this point taken control of Jerusalem. The Egyptians were driven out of Judah by the Babylonians and the Judean king, Jehoiakim, became a vassal of Babylon. To ensure loyalty, some of the Judean nobility, including Daniel and his friends, and probably including Ezekiel, were deported to Babylon. But in 598-97, King Jehoiakim rebelled. Nebuchadnezzar did not take kindly to rebellion. And so he came to Jerusalem and besieged the city for three months. Jehoiakim was executed, and Jehoiachim, his son, was installed as the new king in Jerusalem. He did not last long. Zedekiah was installed in his place. He too, rather unwisely, attempted a revolt against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar responded with vengeance in 589 BC. After a year of siege, 
the walls of Jerusalem were breached. Zedekiah, the last Davidic descendant to sit on Israel's throne, was deported to Babylon, but only after his family were executed in front of him and his eyes put out. The city and the temple were reduced to rubble. The nation of Judah ceased to exist. This was the context in which Ezekiel ministered, a context in which it appeared that all that made Israel Israel had collapsed to nothing. The land that God had promised them, the temple where God's presence resided, the covenant with David the king, all appeared null and void. Ezekiel, we learn from the first chapter, the third verse, was a priest, but it's doubtful that he was ever able to exercise the ministry of a priest. His ministry might be classified as bizarre. He spent periods mute or lying bound and naked, emotionally paralyzed. He had visions of strange creatures and eyes and wheels. He heard voices and sounds of water and sounds of dead bones. Psychoanalysts have called him psychotic or schizophrenic or paranoid. These ideas are all debatable. What does seem clear is this. What the prophets before the exile warned of and what the prophets after the exile reflected back on, Ezekiel experienced firsthand. But in the midst of all of his own pain and horror of the destruction of his nation, Ezekiel brings a word from God, but not before he has a vision from God. The first chapter of the book of Ezekiel is among the most uh, wild in the Old Testament. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from the midst came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings and their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings, thus their, feet, their wings touched each other. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as he went. And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. Now, as I looked the, the living creatures, I saw a wheel on earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction, being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, 
They went in any of four directions without turning as they went. Their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads, and under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight toward one another. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Living creatures with wings and wheels under them, and above them a throne, and one above the throne. The monarchies of Israel and Judah were no more. The exiles are imprisoned and enslaved by a foreign pagan king. But Ezekiel sees a throne. God is still the Lord and King. He is still enthroned above the cherubim. And his throne moves It has wheels. God is not bound to one place. He is not stuck in Jerusalem. His throne is not encapsulated in the temple, now destroyed, now reduced to ashes and dust. God is alive and powerful and glorious, and he is the God of the whole world. He can go in any direction he wants without moving And Ezekiel does what every true prophet does when encountering the awesome presence of the Holy One. He falls face down. But now the scene changes. First, Ezekiel saw. Now, Ezekiel hears. This is not just a vision. It is a message. This is not just an experience of God. The God Ezekiel sees is a commanding God. And the voice said to me, Son of man. Son of man. Our translation that we read a few minutes ago said, Mortal one. Don't be confused. The title Son of man given to Jesus is probably not very closely related to this Uh, uh, prophetic writing of Ezekiel, but more closely related to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees one like a son of man. Here, son of man does mean the mortal one. It means Ezekiel is a mere creature. There is a distance 
between the God who reveals himself and the one who receives the revelation. Ezekiel is a mere human, a mere creature. Son of man, the voice says to him, stand up, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. But Ezekiel, it seems, has no power in himself to help himself. He has no power to allow him to respond, to allow him to stand. So verse 2 says, As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. The Spirit must empower Ezekiel to stand. Here we need to note what the name Ezekiel means. It means God strengthens, or God toughens, or God will strengthen. Ezekiel was weak. He only had the strength to stand when the Spirit entered into him. Only and only if the Spirit comes is Ezekiel able to stand before God and listen to the message. Verse 3, and he said to me, son of man, again that same address, 93 times in this book, Ezekiel is called son of man. Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to, the nation, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. God sends he commissions Ezekiel, but the mission and the message are harsh. The recipients of Ezekiel's message are rebels and transgressors. Transgressors doesn't simply mean sinners. It means sinners who know better, people who, who know the law, who know what God commands, and yet break it on purpose. Transgressors, and they are transgressors to this very day, even in exile, they rebel and transgress. Verse 4 says, The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Not only rebels and transgressors, but impudent and stubborn. But Ezekiel is to say to them, thus says the Lord. God has a message even for the most stubborn, even for the most rebellion, rebellious. Note, Ezekiel is not to speak his own words, his own ideas, Ezekiel is to speak God's words, God's message. Say to the people, thus says the Lord. He is only to give what he has received. Verse 5, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. 
Ezekiel is to preach whether they listen or not. The response of the people is not Ezekiel's responsibility. Ezekiel's responsibility is to deliver the message. The people will be responsible for their own response. In verse 6, for the third time, Ezekiel hears the same address. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Here's the warning to Ezekiel. This is going to hurt. This is not going to be an easy task. No comfort is promised to Ezekiel. Only briars and thorns and scorpions. Okay, well, it might be a scorpion bush. But sitting on a scorpion bush or a scorpion, neither one is very comfortable. Twice God says to him, do not be afraid of them. Well, that's where our lesson ended this morning, but there is more. We need to finish this chapter. Verse 8, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Eat what I give you. Preach the message that is given. The message is not to be watered down. It is not to be made more palatable. It is a message of lamentation and mourning and woe. The people need the truth whether they want it or not. And Ezekiel will receive it from God. He will ingest it. He will digest it. And he will give it out. If we speak God's truth in our culture, in any culture, we may be considered unloving, intolerant, or hard-hearted. That doesn't mean we go out and try to be more abrasive, as if being abrasive means we're being a prophet. Jesus commands us to be gentle as doves. I have had friends in the past who almost rejoiced because people in their church were rejecting the message. The truth is, sometimes clergy are just jerks. But the message that Ezekiel is to give is the message God gives him. And the truth is not always welcome, not always received as the life-giving message it is. Ezekiel's hearers needed the shock therapy he was commanded to give. Catastrophe had come to Israel, 
and it was of their own making. I don't know if you've ever tried to read Ezekiel through in one sitting. I once read it through in one sitting out loud. It's a difficult experience. It's a long book, 48 chapters. And it's a book about lamentation and mourning and woe. So chapters 1 to 24 are all bad news. And chapters 25 to 32 are worse. Finally, in Ezekiel 33, God says through Ezekiel, Will you die, Israel? Will you die? I am offering you a choice. And so the visions and the words continue to be given to Ezekiel. In chapter 34, God condemns the shepherds of Israel, the leaders, the kings, the prophets, the priests. It says they are devouring the sheep instead of taking care of them. But God says, I will send them a new shepherd, David. Wait a minute. Wasn't the house of David finished? Wasn't the last king who was a descendant of David dead? God will send David. But then in the same chapter, God says, I myself will come and shepherd my people. So which is it? Is he going to send David or is he going to go himself? We need a whole other testament to to understand that. We need the coming of Jesus, who is both the descendant of David and the one come from God himself, the one descended from heaven to shepherd the people. Chapter 37 begins with what looks like really bad news as well. Ezekiel looks and he has a vision. And it's a vision of skeletons. Thousands and thousands of dead bodies gone to rot. A valley full of skeletons. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, there it is again. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel has learned something by this point. And so he says, O Lord, you know. And in front of Ezekiel's eyes, the bones come together and there's a rattling sound and skin is formed over the bones and the bones stand up and God's breath, God's ruach, enters the bones, and they come to life. Israel was dead, but God is the God who raises the dead. God is the God who brings new life. And finally, in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the prophet has a vision of a temple, but it's a temple unlike any earthly temple. It's a heavenly temple. It's a temple of the end time. It's a temple of the last day where God's presence will dwell with his people and where there will be healing. Yes, Ezekiel had a different message. 
He had a message of lamentation and mourning and woe. He had a message which condemned the sinfulness of the people of Israel. And not just the sinfulness of the shepherds, the kings, the prophets and priests, but the sinfulness of the whole people. But Ezekiel also had a message that God was not finished. That God brings life from the dead. At the nine o'clock service and again in this service, uh, we are having baptism. And baptism is about life from the dead. There is a story, it is probably apocryphal, I don't know, but the story goes like this, that there was a priest in Latin America who made, who was a bit of a carpenter, and he made a font for his church, but he made it, you know, he made a, you know, it's a small font, because, you know, like us, generally we baptize babies, uh, and so he made this little font, but he made it in the shape of a coffin, and he, he sealed it so that the the water wouldn't leak out and he brought it into church on the, the first day he was doing baptisms after he made this font and he put it on the altar and he filled it with water and he took the baby and he plunged the baby into the coffin and said, I kill you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then took the baby out and said, I raise you to life in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't try this this morning, Tish. It's not an easy message, but that's the message. Baptism is about death and resurrection. It's about the fact that no matter what we have done, no matter what our sin, no matter what our rebellion, our stubbornness, no matter what, God can bring life from the dead. And he has proved it by sending Jesus to die for us and to rise again. You know, the exile was a horrific event for the people of Israel. But it also inspired incredible works of literature, incredible rethinking of what it meant to be God's people. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, other works come out of this exilic period. So do some of the psalms. One of them is probably a psalm you know. You can probably sing it. It was a reggae song once, and it was another version of it in Godspell, which was written in Pittsburgh. Wasn't that Godspell? So it goes like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And that's where the psalm ends in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer in Canada. I haven't checked the prayer book here. But there are actually three more verses. 
but they were deemed inappropriate for Christians to say in church. Here's what they say. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Yes, it's a psalm of lament. It's also a psalm of vengeance. Can we say this psalm? Is this the word of the Lord? Can we say thanks be to God after reading it? Only, only one way. Only if we recognize that the very Son of God counted it not equality with God, counted not equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave. And being found in human likeness, he became, a, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Son of God himself was smashed against the rocks for us. The punishment, the vengeance, which the rebels deserve, he takes on himself. And he goes through death for us and conquers it and comes out the other side victorious. Psalm 137 can only be said if we recognize that the story does not end with exile and with lament, but that the story ends with God's self-giving love and giving himself in Jesus. Let us pray together. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And in our day, Lord Jesus, we remember the unfaithfulness of your church and the travail and the brokenness of the world. We are a rebellious house. Come to us, speak to us. Come to be our shepherd, to breathe new life in us and make these bones live. For we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.